Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Coming up on today's show, I've got a special developer deep dive into Immortals of Avium. Everybody and welcome to another episode of the What's Good Games podcast. Normally, I would say your source for video game news, commentary, analysis, and funny stuff every Friday, but today it's just me. I'm alone. <laughs> just kidding, I'm not alone. I had, in fact, have two fantastic members from the team at Ascendant Studios joining me to chat about their work on upcoming game Immortals of Avium. But before we get to that, I want to let you know that this week's episode is brought to you by Factor and Shopify, which I'll tell you about in just a little bit. And of course, y'all know that I need to give my shout out and thank you to our wonderful Patreon producers, Chewy's Godson, Ferrisatia, Justin Foshi, and Punctified. And welcome to our Patreon community, everybody who has signed up at patreon.com slash what's good games. I don't have the names yet because I'm recording this early. Yeah, a little behind the scenes info for you there, but we will get that updated next week when we are back with our regularly scheduled episode. And it's going to be a doozy because it's Gamescom next week, everybody. Opening Night Live is happening. There's a Destiny showcase. You definitely don't want to miss it. A lot of news is going to drop, at least fingers crossed. We hope that it does. But before we get to that, of course, there's this special episode. So a little bit of setup. I got the chance to play Immortals of Avium, an upcoming first-person magic shooter from Ascendant Studios, partnered with EA Originals back at Summer Game Fest. Brittany and I both got to play. We chatted about it on that show. We got the opportunity to talk to some of the members of the PR team, and they said, hey, do you guys want to chat with some of these awesome people from Ascendant about their work on the game? And I said, heck yes, I do. I love highlighting women in games. So I had the amazing opportunity to sit down with Alyssa and Julia, who I'll introduce in just a minute, to talk about what they do at the studio, some cool things that they worked on specifically in Immortals, and a little bit more about the process that goes into making this fantasy world out of a brand new IP. So I hope that you guys enjoy the episode. Let me know what you think by leaving a comment below or shooting us an email at contact at whatsgoodgames.com. And we'll be back with our Gamescom heavy episode next week. Enjoy. Hey everybody, Andrea Renee here with a very special episode, an interview for What's Good Games. You might have heard of a tiny little game coming out next week called Immortals of Avium. This is the game that Brittany and I got to take a look at back at Summer Game Fest and has been making the rounds through all of the different shows. It was recently at San Diego Comic-Con and we have two wonderful members of the team at Ascendant Studios here to talk to me about their work on the game. Please welcome Julia Lishblau, the Associate Art Director and 
Alyssa Lutz, the senior level designer from Ascendant. Welcome, ladies. Hello. Hey, good to be here. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. And shout out to Scott from your team for helping me coordinate (laughs) this and the wonderful folks at EA for putting this together. I'm so glad that we were able to make this work. I love talking to members from the team about their work, particularly a new studio and a brand new game and a new IP. It's got to be like so nerve wracking and exciting at the same time that launches so close. The whole team is really excited. We have an entire hype channel on Slack that is just constantly being pinged by Scott and other members of the media team just showing like, hey, this was a cool podcast we just did. Or hey, look at this article that people are writing about the studio and their excitement for the game. So we're all getting really excited here. Yeah, it's fun. Like just yesterday, somebody was watching a YouTube video and then the ad came on for our game. And so they like record it and send it on the Xbox homepage. So that was really fun. Some Mm -hmm. people take screenshots and share it all over the hype channel. So it's just getting more and more momentum each week. We've been getting really excited. Do you have big launch day plans? Are you like going to do something with the team or are you going to be working? So we launch on the 22nd, which I believe is a Tuesday. So for the folks who are lucky to be in the area, we are going to be doing a little bit of a lunch where we try and get everyone, as many people as possible, into the actual studio to celebrate that launch. And then later on, on the 26th, we're having everyone come in just from across the country for our launch party, which is going to be in San Francisco. I myself work fully remote from Georgia. So obviously they're in California and most of the people I work with are also remote. So a lot of us have never even met in person. Like all of our conversations are through Slack and huddles and things like that. So it's actually really impressive to me that we've been able to get this game out largely completely remote. And I think our studio has been a great proof that like, hey, it can be done, you know, in a very healthy manner with people getting to kind of live where they want to be and start their own lives. So it's been a really great experience. That's fantastic because the bulk of this development was done during the pandemic when things were very hard for everybody, particularly people who are doing technologically based jobs remotely. And video game development has a lot of security around code and all that. And so we've talked obviously a lot about that over the last year or so of the podcast, you know, once we finally were able to get developers on talking about their projects. Was that something that was challenging for your team or because you were mostly remote from the get-go that you guys were able to adapt a little bit easier? So for myself, I actually came in, I think it was like midway through the pandemic when I joined Ascendant. So my previous company, we had already started going remote. So I had a lot of that experience there. And for me, I don't know, like everyone's kind of different, but I always liked it from the get go. You know, I'm around 24 seven. So if somebody like pings me at 9pm, I just hear it. And it's so much easier versus oh, no, I left the office. Or you know, if things are slower at work in the morning, then I can just kind of take it easy. And then when things ramp up later, then I'm here. So it's It's been really easy to be much more flexible in that kind of situation. As far as the tech stuff, I don't have too much to that. They shipped me a computer and I have all the double logins and do all those things, especially with like EA, we have verification and that's to my knowledge gone very smoothly. Well, that's great to hear. Yeah, I, because I am local, I started in the office. I was there at the very beginning where we actually were in this small little office in Sausalito, like quite literally in a garage. So I (laughs) was able to sort of tick off that box of, oh, I've officially, you know, worked in a startup that was in a garage. And then we quickly moved to our (laughs) San Rafael office. And then actually during the pandemic, we were building out our third and hopefully final building in San Rafael. And so every step of the way, it was just really fun in the early stages when this studio and when the game was in its very early development. 
where we knew vaguely, like Brett had his concept for what the game was going to be about. But there was something about being in the office together and like being able to walk around and just talk about the game, see what people were working on. A lot of it was very like we were just exploring, we were creating different vignettes and just having a lot of experimentation. And so that I think was really helpful when we were in the physical office. But then right when the pandemic started in 2020 was really where we started to just know exactly what our game was, what our combat was going to be, what our levels should look like. And we just jumped directly into production mode and obviously needed to staff up accordingly to just really start buckling down and building this game. And so to that end, just the being able to open up to remote work allowed us to pull in all kinds of talent from around the world and work with people that previously would not really have been on the forefront of our minds. And just being able to switch over so completely to this remote work and remote communication, remote meetings, like Alyssa said, it was much easier for us to be able to work with people across time zones because they could jump on it at different points in time or just answer a question on their phone in the evenings or early mornings. I think that our company adapted really well to it and our game was just made that much better by it. That's fantastic because if it works for everybody, it makes the whole process just a little bit easier because turns out making the game is the hard part. (laughs) Yeah. Hopefully doing your job and being able to do your job isn't the difficult part of it. I would love to hear a little bit about each of your roles. One of the cool things about our show is when we get to feature people on the teams is kind of learning about different areas of video game development. So Alyssa, let's start with you. As a senior level designer, what does that mean exactly? So in the very beginning of the game, I kind of take ownership of a few levels and then I'm responsible for that pitch phase and kind of coming up with the idea and passing that through the creative director and other directors and then kind of planning that level flow. Okay, we want this here. Then you have a combat here and then we do a cinematic here and, you know, all of the flow of that. And once all of that's approved, I'm the one building the white box and implementing the combat and kind of putting that level together and working closely with the level artist. So they'll kind of take the aesthetic side of that and, you know, implications. I mean, we kind of have this back and forth that we start doing. From then on, I just kind of maintain with the level. So when bugs start coming through or we need to shift or make cuts, I'm kind of the one doing that throughout the levels. Now where we're at in the game, it's a lot of bug fixing for my own levels and now hopping off to help other level designers and their levels kind of get them out the door finally. <laughs> well, that's very exciting. We'll, we'll dig into that in just a second. Julia, you are the associate art director. What does an associate art director do? Well, I actually started at the company as a level artist or environment artist. You know, in the industry, there's a lot of different terms for it. But I ostensibly would have been one of the ones working with Alyssa on levels, you know, partnered with a designer. And in the early phases of the game, that's what I was doing. I was working in a pod system where I was helping designers art out the levels in accordance with our white box and just sort of jumping back and forth between different levels. As an associate art director, I was able to move into some of the exciting like the concept phases and being able to actually work with our concepting outsource houses and really help visualize new levels that didn't exist yet. Again, working with design and with the directors to understand what you wanted out of a space, but then also helping to come up with unique ideas for the architecture or what the flora and fauna of different areas were going to look like. While still, you know, jumping back and forth into different levels to help out where it's needed. 
So just a few things both of you have, you know, under your purview. Just a couple of things. <laughs> I do want to mention you both use the term white box. And for people who are listening or watching the show, like, what does that term mean? Yeah. So, you know, if we did everything with final art assets and meticulously built everything, and then all of a sudden Brett comes in and is like, oh, no, we made a grave mistake. Like, we got to change this. Well, now you're undoing like months of work, right? And you have to reshift it and do all that. So instead, we do white box in the beginning, which are primitive. So think like cubes, triangles that kind of work on a grid scale so we can scale them. And so you just make kind of proxy shapes with them. So, you know, originally, like one of the levels that's been in the recent videos is library that has some floating islands. So the first part of that was just like a cylinder cone thing. And that's all it was. <laughs> and then, you know, you kind of start. So it looked really funny, just all these kind of cones floating in the sky. And then you kind of start building on that more. And then the artist can kind of look at that and be like, okay, I think like this is what we need to kind of fit that. And but it makes iteration a lot easier. So, you know, if we have to make cuts, it's just I'm deleting maybe five meshes instead of 200 art pieces. So largely most of my time is spent in white box until the art starts coming in. And also that white box kit we made at the very beginning before we even had any art assets to begin with. This was one of the first things that I actually helped work with design on at the very beginning when we were trying to establish metrics for the game. Like how high can our main character jump? How far can he hover? And we basically had a set of these white box walls that were, you know, half height wall that, yeah, sure, Jack could easily jump up over it or a full height wall that Jack could not get over. So that was really helpful in the early phases of levels to just block out where Jack can get to and where he can't. Yeah. That's really interesting. So the white box, that's ahead of the gray box or are they the same thing? We use them interchangeable. The most game engines, BSP or other gray block phase, ours are just white. And so hence the name. (laughs) Okay. No, this is fascinating to me because I mean, I've definitely been familiar and seen games in development in the gray box stage, but I think it's interesting you guys are going white. It's kind of like the idea of like a blue and a green screen, right? They essentially function exactly the same. They're just different colors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm getting a little distracted just because I'm personally interested in what you guys do at the (laughs) studio, but we do want to talk about the game that you are actually working on. And I assume if people are this far into the interview, they are at least basically familiar with with what Immortals of Avium is, but I'm going to read, pushes up glasses, the marketing <laughs> copy from the website. It says, summon your power, stop the ever war, save the realms. Immortals of Avium is a single player, first person magic shooter that tells the story of Jack as he joins an elite order of battle mages to save a world on the edge of abyss. I wish I had a better like movie trailer voice, but that's the best that I got right now. So we've talked about the game on the show before. What I have found really interesting about my time playing the game back at Summer Game Fest and what we've seen so far from all of the different gameplay that Ascendant and EA have put out on YouTube and trailers and things is that it's first person magic, but it definitely feels more like a hip fire shooter versus like something that's a little bit more precise. And I think that that's a really interesting direction to go, particularly from an art style. So We've seen the three basic colors of magic, right, that are there. We've got the red, the blue, and the green, but they're also represented by shapes, which I think is really fascinating, triangle, diamond, and circle. Now, when I first saw this, the first thing that came to my mind, because I'm always thinking about accessibility, large in part to my good friend Steve Spawn over at Able Gamers, was that, wow, that's a really cool accessible choice. Was that an intentional choice or just a happy accident? So when Dave Bogan, the senior art director, and I were just trying to come up with some visual language for these three colors, 
We were told at the beginning that Brett had this idea for primary colors. So like red, green, and blue were going to really be our magic types. We knew that we wanted to add some extra layers of detail and visual interest that could just sort of ripple out into the way that the environments were built, the way the architecture was built, the way the enemies were represented. And that's hard to do with just color. And so we started to think about, okay, how do we add some extra shape language into it? And almost immediately, we realized that that would be a huge boon for accessibility. And so So we settled on green for circular shapes and the way that the VFX are actually represented is is much more like cylindrical. All of the green enemy magni kind of have these like curling horns and a lot of their costuming has all these circles on them. The red magni, they're more triangular and spiky and all of the sort of red crystals that you come across have this triangular shape to them. And then blue is a square. And so similarly, like the blue magni that you come across have these very sort of square shape or rectangular helmets or just capes, like just so from a distance, you can immediately see, like you were saying, we have a very sort of fast paced, sort of frenetic gameplay. And it's hard to to see everything that's going on. You know, we encourage you to like step out in the middle of the fray and just start like shooting from the hip. And so having such clear shape language from you know, an enemy standpoint and a VFX standpoint, and then even just puzzling, I think it just was a no-brainer. It was a way to just give people that much more information in a split second than pure color. I really like it. I mean, it comes across on screen, you know, like you mentioned, there's like a lot of kind of moving pieces, but it all really flows together. It did get a little hectic during my boss fight with the Howler. I think that's (laughs) the name of the dragon that I fought in my Summer Game Fest demo. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just like, also, I was still learning like how all of my powers worked, but it definitely has this really cool visual style. I mean, a lot of the world of Avium definitely feels like super rich and colorful. And I'm curious, you know, Alyssa, as you know, someone who's in charge of kind of placing all these elements together, how do you work with the art team to say, okay, the artists have these ideas. Now I need to figure out how we're going to like get the player to move through them. It feels like you kind of have to do it hand in hand or does one come before the other? So I think, you know, every pod kind of has their workflow. So I'll speak to mine. Mine was a little bit of, I would be maybe 5% ahead and kind of like, hey, you know, what about this? And then I would get with the artist and they'd be like, well, I think this would work, but like this might be really difficult to pull off. So then I would be like, okay, like, let me adjust. Because we had some original ideas that I remember my level artist was like, oh my God, no. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) But you know, like if, you know, you want to like kind of meet in the middle somewhere. So it's definitely, I mean, I remember there were days where, I mean, me and him talked every day, like almost every two hours, like something was kind of going back and forth. And you know, designers aren't perfect. Like sometimes I'd get stumped and kind of look at something and be like, I've been staring at this too long. Like, hey, help. Do you have any ideas just looking at this really quick? And sure enough, he'd come and, you know, give me an idea. And so it it is very, very hand in hand about making sure what your other team members can accomplish within the given amount of time. Is there any kind of like secret sauce or formula to that design process? I mean, because this game is an action adventure game. It's also a shooter. So you've got elements of combat, of course, which we've been talking about, the magic with the sigils, puzzles, which are a part of it as well. And of course, like the exploration through these different levels. Like how do you kind of balance one over the other? Yeah. So I kind of do a mixed approach. I mean, there's always like the classic formula, right? Like if I have three really fast paced combats right in a row, the player's 
going to start getting fatigue. So you tend to do like, okay, we'll have a combat here. And then you have a little bit of traversal. Maybe you come across a puzzle. Then maybe there's a narrative beat. And then boom, we'll take you back into combat. So you kind of have that flow that we call it. But if flow gets too predictable, then the player starts feeling bored. So if I always do the sequence of combat, puzzle, cinematic, combat, puzzle, cinematic, it becomes so predictable and players tend to fall off. So another thing I like to mix in is like, yeah, we'll have this really cool space. And maybe when you enter, you do a combat. But then, you know, maybe if you stick around for a bit, you'll find two secrets in the same area. Then you'll find a puzzle off to the left. And maybe you hit some VO or you find a lore thing to pick up. And it's kind of player driven at that point. Like if they want to get to the next combat, they can go or they can kind of take their time and explore. So I find kind of doing a mix of like player driven flow, but then also kind of parts where it's orchestrated by me kind of helps the experience not be so predictable. Hi, everybody. It's Andrea again. Sorry to interrupt the interview, but I wanted to take a quick moment to let you know that this episode of What's Good Games is made possible by our sponsor, Factor. Whether you're prepping for back to school or the busy fall gaming season, because, who boy, there's a lot of games coming out. You might be looking for some wholesome, conveniently prepared meals for those jam-packed days and nights. Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, can help you feel up fast with chef-prepared, dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. Oh, how convenient. You'll save time, eat well, and you'll stay on track so you're not just eating popcorn for dinner, which happens to me more often than I want to admit. You can choose from 34 weekly flavor-packed, dietitian approved meals ready to eat in just two minutes or less. They've got a little something for everyone, from calorie-smart meals that are around 550 calories or less per serving to gourmet-plus options with fancy ingredients like truffle butter and broccolini. That's right, everyone. It's fancy vegetable time. Come on, broccolini is good. You like it. Round out your meals and replenish your snack supply with an assortment of over 45 add-ons, including breakfast items like the delicious apple cinnamon pancakes, bacon and cheddar egg bites, potato bacon and egg breakfast skillet. Ooh, I'm hungry already. Or for an easy wellness boost, try the refreshing beverage options like cold pressed juices, shakes, and smoothies. This August, get factor and enjoy eating well without the hassle. Simply Choose your meals and enjoy fresh, flavor-packed meals delivered right to your door. Ready in just two minutes. No prep, no mess. Ugh, I love a no-dishes moment. Last week, you guys, I tried the fiery beef and black bean chili with cilantro, sweet potatoes, and corn salsa, and it was absolutely delicious. And my favorite part was that it was just the right portion size, so I felt full, but without feeling that uncomfortable, oh, no, I ate too much moment, which you know exactly what I'm talking about. We've all done it. If you want to try the meals for yourself, head on over to factormeals.com slash what's good 50 and use our code what's good 50 to get 50% off. That's five zero, everybody. That's code what's good 50 at factormeals.com slash what's good 50 to get 50% off. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
This episode of What's Good Games is also brought to you by Shopify. Abandoned carts, rejected payments, spotty support. If you're selling online and something just isn't working, you deserve an upgrade. It's time for Shopify. (laughs) Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or maybe you're IPO ready, go you. Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Do you have a way with products, but maybe not with words? I mean, I get it. It's tough. Use Shopify's new AI-enabled tools powered by Shopify Magic to instantly write compelling product descriptions and email subject lines that will help you save time and sell more. And once you've reached your target audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. Uh, bye abandoned carts. The power of a platform like Shopify is that no matter if you own a huge business selling things like funny t-shirts, or maybe you're a bespoke gaming podcast that has custom merch. I don't know who I could be talking about. It's us, everybody. It's us. They've got the tools to take your sales to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. That's a lot of stores. And Shopify is truly a global force powering companies like Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is possibility powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com slash what's good. That's all lowercase, everybody. Go to shopify.com slash what's good to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash what's good. All right, everybody. Thanks for checking out those messages from our sponsors this week. Now let's get back to the interview. I'm glad that you mentioned lore because one of the things that is really difficult, as you both know, about creating a new IP is kind of coming up with these ideas of the lore. And obviously, that's, you know, the narrative team's job. But part of your team's job, Julia, is kind of creating the way that these little items are going to look in menus. And there's quite a few like intricate pieces. Some of the things that I got to see just in my short time with the game, there's so many different little pieces of art that go kind of hand in hand with that. If feels like such a massive undertaking to kind of create all of that artistic look completely from the ground up. Did you guys have like a baseline of where to start or did Brett and just for people who are like, who is this Brett person that they keep referring to? That's (laughs) Brett Robbins, the founder of the studio and the game director. Did he come in and say like, okay, this is what's been in my mind. Let's start here. Or did you guys bring influence from all different members of the team? Well, so Brett initially had this concept, the very base bare bones of the game and of the world of Avium. He was the one who came up with the idea of what these five kingdoms were going to be. And, you know, they're divided by this giant crack in the middle of the world, which is called the wound. And that sends these sort of schisms out. And then in the center is this pentasod, which is a giant thousands of feet tall statue that is just at the very center of it. And he sort of knew that he wanted to go across these different biomes and there'd be these snowy peaks of Calthus and then these really sort of lush forests of Lucium. So we had a core idea of what this world was going to be, but Brett really allowed the early art team to just dig into what excited us. We spent so much time at the very beginning just doing research, just going online or thinking back to past experiences of like artistic things that just really captured our interest. Dave Bogan, the senior art director who's in charge of designing all the characters, he always talks about the design for Sandrak's mask being early inspired by like a Harley Davidson grill. 
or just a few other like masks and of characters that he grew up watching on TV or like little action figures. And so I think that you can sort of trace back where the origins of a lot of these gear items, these lore items, the architecture, it all sort of comes back from what really excited us as artists. And the fact that we had this brand new world that we wanted to build out, and we had the opportunity to actually just imbue and explore all the things that we never had a chance to do working on established IPs before. The stuff that you see, like the sigils, they all are very beautiful. And because they're magic, we were able to just be very freeform with the design. A lot of it, you have really intricate filigree and some of the sigils that you can unlock actually reference different continents or different kingdoms. Like there is one that you can unlock that is reminiscent of the library level that Alyssa worked on or the Goliath level and share similar shape language with those kingdoms and with those spaces. You know, it wasn't like we had to stick to the specifications of a pre-existing gun. You know, we were able to just build in a lot of interesting patterning and materials and types of metal just to make it that much more interesting and still make it feel grounded, but like you're in this otherworldly space. The art design of so much of the gear and the set pieces is super cool. I mean, I'm a big high fantasy person and I really think it's interesting the way that, you know, you guys have as a team are kind of like melding this kind of modern sensibility with high fantasy and finding this mashup. And it almost feels like there's like a little bit of sci-fi mixed in there. It's kind of created this really unique world. But I wanted to mention just because Scott gave me this little tidbit and I thought it was a cool thing was that in the world of Avian, there's obviously different biomes that the player is going to go experience in different geographical locations. You see, you know, flora and fauna. And there's this one level where the flowers are just so pretty. But he had mentioned to me that some of the work you did, Julia, is on flowers specifically, is actually about preservation for IRL flowers. And I thought that that was really Mm -hmm. cool. Yeah, so actually you see this across the game. In every single level, there are elements of realistic, endangered, and threatened species. That was something where, you know, like I spoke before about we had a lot of opportunity to just explore what we were passionate about, both as artists and just people in general. I've always been really passionate about biology and ecology. And as we were constructing the flora for this game, we knew we wanted magic plants. You know, you can't have a a fantasy universe without really unique stuff that you would not see on Earth. You know, we have blue glowing plants that you find in caves or growing on top of specific architecture that's fallen apart. And it's all just really beautiful and vibrant colors that don't really exist in our world. But we also knew we wanted to create a grounded experience that is sort of Earth-like and it, it kind of makes everything feel that much more realistic. And so we could have gone out and just replicated a standard like oak tree or a standard daffodil flower that you see. But there are some undercurrents of environmentalism in our game, just in terms of story beats, talking about everyone's fighting over magic, which is sort of like a resource that everyone's fighting over. And so just a thread along that was thinking, hey, well, we need to make these natural looking plants that are more realistic. Why don't we just model them off of real life threatened and endangered species that are in North America? And so I was just starting to do some research and finding a whole bunch in the Bay Area. Like there's a Tiburon Mariposa lily that's just down the street. That's in this like tiny, tiny little, you know, couple square miles section and highly endangered. You know, the sequoias, the redwoods that we have around here. There's just like so many interesting plants that 
exist here, but no one's ever really seen them before because they are so rare and so threatened. So that was just a fun way of getting that preserved in this game and also me learning a lot more about these species that are so endangered but are still in our own backyard. I think that that's fantastic. I mean, clearly the research that our teams do is extensive on any game project, but the idea that you get to work in this really cool conservation from a digital standpoint, I think is super fascinating and quite wonderful. More people (laughs) should do it. It's certainly an issue that's facing everybody these days. Alyssa, I would love to hear from you a little bit about how you and the design team approached the kind of behemoth task of going, how big are we going to make this game? Because one of the things that really stood out to me from my time chatting with Brett when I got to meet him and some of the members of the team back at SGF was that he kept referring to it as like a crafted bespoke experience. Because there seems to be this idea among certain circles of gamers that every game should be 500 hours and this giant open world sandbox experience. And you know, a lot of us gamers, particularly you know older gamers or gamers that have kids or other people in their life they have to take care of are like, actually, I don't have that kind of time on my hands. It feels like also from a design standpoint, it feels better maybe to not have to have that huge expansive thing on your plate. But you're the designer, you tell me. Yeah, so I think that our game, something cool about it is we kind of strike that balance. So somebody that wants to do everything in the game and go look at every square inch of geometry through it and do every single puzzle, get every single sigil. When I was doing a recent playthrough, I think I almost spent like close to 40 hours. Like it was a bit. But if you just want to see the story, want to get through the golden path, like you don't need to spend 40 hours. So that's something cool about our game. It fits any kind of player. So there's a lot of golden path stuff that you have to do. But then, you know, if you go off that golden path, there's a lot of optional content, a lot of puzzles, a lot of optional fights. So it's really kind of in the person's control of how hard they want to make the game and how much they want to explore and kind of with the completionist attitude. So what kind of player are you? Are you the one who must pick up every single thing every time? Or are you like, you know what? Golden Path sounds great. And I'm not just referring to this game, the one you worked on. I mean, kind of generally for games you play. Yeah, so I'm not an achievement hunter, but I'm a completionist in the sense of like, oh my God, God forbid I miss like the chest in the corner. I must check every (laughs) single path. And then if I think it's the Golden Path, I'll turn around to go back down the other path and make sure that there's nothing there. And like, sometimes I'll say like, it's almost too much. Like I ruin games for myself. Like, cause like you said, I don't have tons of time to spend on a game every night where I get overwhelmed. I'm like, so I've been trying to get away from that a little bit, but in games like Baldur's Gate, right? Like I'm looking at every single freaking thing. I'm still in the first town. Like it's been hours. I'm still there. So, but you know, with games that I'm maybe not as into, like I try to just stick to the golden path in hopes that I actually finish the game. So I'm trying to strike a balance. (laughs) What kind of player are you, Julia? I'm definitely, I have completionist tendencies and I will usually start off a game in full force, like Assassin's Creed games at the beginning. You know, I will just dive all into like, I must collect every feather and find every single chest. But then I just burn myself out. Once I, you know, move to the next area and just see how far... I have to move through the game, like Elden Ring. <laughs> similarly, you know, I, I just keep moving to the next area and then actually see how big the map 
math is. And I'm like, there's no way I'm doing this. And, and then stick to a very like regimented path through. What I love about our game is because it is that sort of smaller, shorter experience and a little bit more crafted. I get the best of both worlds. I know that, sure, I can put in like 30 hours and still find all of the chests and find all the cool lore Mostly because I know where they are because I, <laughs> I, I play say, this game so much. Convenient, but it's hard for me. Even when we're just, I'm jumping into the game to test something. If I see a crate, I'm going to shoot it. I'm going to collect whatever gold it is that's going to be irrelevant as soon as I close the editor. I have that visceral need to collect that <laughs> loot and pick up those lore items. Yeah, that's so interesting that you mentioned that because that's one of my big problems when I go to do demos at events Mm -hmm. is that I know that my time with the game is finite. I'm like, okay, I either get sometime between 20 minutes and two hours with this game. Me picking up everything is going to be absolutely fruitless, but I still do it out of habit because I'm a trash panda (laughs) and I can't turn it off. (laughs) So I do really appreciate that about the playtime that I have had so far with Immortals of Avium that it feels really rich and full without feeling overwhelming. And sometimes you just want that, you know, Mm -hmm. like you just want, you know, something finite. (laughs) Yes. And I will say that reminds me a lot of our sort of additional content or return content is sort of locked off with more like Metroidvania approaches where it's stuff that you can only return to get after you have advanced the story and acquired certain abilities or gotten certain abilities to unlock different areas, different wards and that sort of thing. So it is kind of nice knowing that, okay, I I see this space that I can get to, that I can come back to later and do this whole puzzle or maybe have enjoy this whole other encounter experience. But if I'm just exhausted and just want to finish off the game, you know, you don't have to go back to that. I'm glad you brought that up because the term Metroidvania gets thrown around quite a bit. And a lot of our listeners will reach out to us and be like, I don't exactly know like what that term means, either because they didn't play the original Castlevania games or just because like it feels like that term in and of itself has kind of morphed over time and people are using it pretty loosely. I mean, when you're designing a game that has puzzle elements, exploration and traversal mechanics all working together... I mean, how much emphasis do you guys put on the idea that, oh, we're really going to design in to force the player to backtrack through the level once they have something unlocked later on? It feels like sometimes striking that balance can be super challenging. Yeah, for myself, it's really just making sure the player has an opportunity to see the thing. Because really, at the end of the day, it's going to be up to them. We know not every player is going to want to go back. And then we know the other 50% are super going to want to go back. So if you're too off the beaten path, a lot of players can kind of miss like, oh, there's that weird thing. Like, I think I can do something with that. And like me, I definitely have some pretty well hidden secrets in some of my levels. But then there's some that I just want you to be like, hey, look at that. It's to your left. And you're not going to miss it. You're going to see it. So that way you fruit is welcome from time to time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like there's one thing in, in library where I don't know if anybody's going to find it. If they do, that'll be great. I'm going to go to YouTube and see if anybody found it. But, you know, Mm -hmm. but I want there to be things that aren't that egregiously hard to see. So just kind of like wave into the player. Hey, I'm here. Like, look at me. You can come do this later. So I kind of do a balance of both. And I found that people tend to really go back, especially if something seems like pretty challenging. It's like more elaborate of a puzzle. At least I'm the kind of player that definitely goes back. (laughs) 
I see a locked door and I, I have to go back. And that's yeah. the kind of player I am too. Yeah. But I know we're getting to the end of our time. And so I want to kind of wrap up the interview, kind of asking each of you if you have like a fun tidbit or something from your work on the game that you want players to look out for. I know, Alyssa, you just mentioned something in the library, <laughs> so I'm definitely going to keep an eye out for that. Yeah. But Julia, do you have something that you're like, there's this thing that I worked on that I'm very excited and proud of, and hopefully someone finds it. Ooh, let's see. There's a lot of that. I mean, I think that I have definitely added a little Easter egg where my dog, Indy, she has been <laughs> immortalized in the game in some capacity. She's been sort of transformed. She's this adorable white lab, but she's been transformed into sort of the avian version of what the dogs might be in this world. And so I was really happy to be able to sneak her into the game. We also have three other dogs, ascendant dogs, who snuck their way in so the eagle-eyed viewer can look and see if they can find her and the other dogs oh i love that can you pet the dogs everyone must know <laughs> well she's not represented as a physical petable okay. you know, interactable but that does segue into another adorable aspect of the game probably my favorite little interactable animation that was made for the game but there is a creature that you usually encounter as an enemy type. But if you look really carefully and explore some of our hub spaces, you might be able to find a non-combatant version that hmm. is very adorable. Interesting. Okay, <laughs> I'll keep an eye out for that. Alyssa, did you have a, anything else besides the uh, library scene? Yeah, so I'm going to mention this one. It's not necessarily an Easter egg. So the Colossal was one of my other levels. He's the giant robot dude that you like go inside and outside of. And I noticed sometimes in playtest people miss this, but I know me and the animators put a lot of effort into getting it in and it looks really cool. So I'll say when things start to go wrong and you land, look to your left a little bit out to the sea and you'll see the Goliath do a thing. And it's really, really cool. But a lot of people miss it because if you're looking right, it happens very fast. And that level is more golden path, like we're pushing you forward during chaos. So you'll just miss it and not have the opportunity to go back and see it. So keep an eye on his arms. <laughs> Ooh, I love that. Well, ladies, thank you so much for chatting with me about your work on the game and what you do at the studio. And Immortals of Avium is out on August 22nd. And if you guys want to check it out, you can go to the Immortals of Avium YouTube channel. They have all kinds of developer diaries and deep dives. And we'll have our thoughts on the show when we come back from the break. But thank you again for being on the show. We'll put all of the links where they can find more info down below. And good luck with launch, everybody. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. All right, bye. Bye. Bye.